Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Several times on the show, I've mentioned that the really big thing in technology before the World Wide Web came along was multimedia, and specifically CD-ROM technology. Today we're going to talk to Bob Stein, who was the founder of Voyager, the company that was the publisher of the first consumer CD-ROM titles, and was far and away the leader of the CD-ROM industry in the late 1980s all the way into the early and mid-1990s. Bob has a fascinating career, as you'll hear, as he was also one of the founders of the Criterion Collection, as well as the publisher of the first electronic books. Please enjoy this conversation with my fellow TED resident, Bob Stein. Bob Stein, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thank you, Brian. Nice to be here. You're the second person that has come on that I found just within TED's walls here. So um, I I heard you say today, I, I think you... You grew up on the Upper West Side. I did. Um, in Manhattan. Used... Right. <laughs> that, well, that actually, good point that out. But I was going to say that um, that used to be known, at least, as a neighborhood of bookstores. Um, and also a, a very um, academic, a, a neighborhood of, of thoughts and thinkers. Think of intellectuals, actually. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So would you say that that was somewhat formative to you um, growing up there? No. <laughs> Not in the least. Were you a big reader? I read a lot, but my, my parents, although they both had Ivy League educations, there was hardly a book in the house. They were not really? intellectuals. You're and, throwing me a curveball right out the front here. And so, yes, I read a lot as a as a kid, but um, I, I was not particularly nerdy. Huh. I was not a good student. You know, it was... A, on the other hand, you know, it's complicated. I mean, I, my sixth grade class, I went to a school that was 80% Latino, and my class was 100% white, and for six years it was just us, and we were 99% Jewish. And the kids in my class, their parents were all intellectuals, mm. and so it must have rubbed off on, in some mm-hmm. way. Well, I'm, uh, you know, I'm surprised because researching you in this through line of your career in terms of um, being fascinated with the idea of the book, of learning, of new modes of learning and things like that, that developed, uh, I, I know you got a master's in education, so that you're saying that developed later? You know, I was, I, I grew up as a do-gooder liberal, and education seemed like the right space to make a contribution. Mm. But for me, I, I really had to unlearn a lot of what I sort of, let's say, went up into university with. I mean, we, there was a phrase in the 60s that the reason why all these rebellions were taking place in Watts and Newark and New York and Detroit were because the black communities were culturally disadvantaged. Well, that was ridiculous. But so it took me a long time to sort of get out from under that and to sort of realize that there were deeper systemic reasons why we were in trouble and it wasn't the fault didn't lie in the black community. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of of the 60s, I feel like if I had a different background, uh you could do a a separate 
a separate entire oral history on um, you were involved uh, starting the SDS chapter at Columbia. Um, so I'm, were you involved in like, you know, the, the Hamilton Hall takeovers and things like that? Yep. Okay. Like I said, someone... Well, actually, to be, to be 100% honest, when Hamilton Hall was occupied, I was at Harvard at graduate school. Okay. But I came down two days later mm-hmm. into the math building and got arrested there. Was, um, okay, was, was, it, was that just in the water? Like, not that you were radicalized, but was that, was it of the times that, that you, you become a professional activist? Yeah, you know, it, it, it this is an interesting story. Uh, in 1966, I'd started this community center. We had a lot of people working at it, all Columbia students. And one of them was a guy named Juan Gonzalez that some of you listeners may know from Amy Goodman's Democracy Now! show. He's the co-host. And Juan and I decided we would take a course at, at the Columbia School of Social Work. And the guy who was teaching it said to us, to go back to culturally disadvantaged, the reason why the situation is the way it is is not because of this ridiculousness that people are saying. It's because of imperialism. Now, Juan and I, I was a senior. He was going to be a junior. We were hearing this for the first time. This is unbelievable to think that, you know, two students at a, you know, prestigious university are just hearing the concept of imperialism for the first time in a summer school class at the School of Social Work. But we did, and that was really what got both of us sort of shifted from being, you know, I would say, again, do-gooder liberals to being uh, radicalized. And and it, that's the right term. You're you're a radical activist, um, a revolutionary. Um, well, that took a while. I mean, I you know to me the radical activist just meant that mm-hmm. there was a problem and we had to fix it, and and fixing it meant you know really turning things around. But it really wasn't until '72 with the um, McGovern Nixon uh, election where all my Marxist friends, because I did not consider myself a Marxist at that point, they were all saying it makes no difference who wins the election. The Vietnamese are winning and this war is going to be over. And then Nixon wins and two years later the war is over and I just sort of hit myself upside the head and said, wow, Mm. so this Marxism actually is a science of society and these guys actually understand what's happening at such a deep level that they can predict something as substantial as the end of the war in the way that it ended. And that's when I actually became a Marxist and a revolutionary. Is, um, it, it, describe for me what that means then at that stage. Are you, uh, aside, I, I believe you're, orga- you're doing publishing, like you're organizing. Well, no, I, I mean, it, so I, I, I moved to Seattle um, the war ended. I, be, I, I joined something called the Revolutionary Union that was the precursor of the Revolutionary Communist Party. And I worked for uh, five or six years in sort of the propaganda arm of the party. Uh, I was, worked in a factory for a while and then I started uh, working in bookstores and in mm-hmm. distribution and various aspects of uh, publishing and propaganda. But I'll point out that that is uh, 
education, yeah. education for revolution, right? Um, so, what's the bookstore uh, that you started in Seattle? I didn't start it, but it was it was Liberation Books. Liberation Books, and then the the party. We we opened up. I I signed the lease on the New York store, which was called Revolution Books, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it. it if you look at my work all the way through, yeah. there's a, a through line. Yes. I mean, I, I, I think I was, I, you were looking this morning at this mm-hmm. letter that, you know, that I wrote in 1968 where I crossed the, 1968 was the year that the, the movement for community control of schools and the white racist teachers union in New York City went on strike. And in my school, because I was teaching that year, I was the only white teacher who crossed the picket line. And, you know, I, I have these letters where I, you know, I, I criticize the schools for not teaching as opposed to the kids for not learning. And so it's, it's what I've been interested in always. I mean, I think, you know, le- learning is how we move forward. Mm-hmm. And the, the wider the learning the better. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you burrow into a subject very narrowly, sometimes that can make you myopic. And so I'm sort of, I, I, I like big picture stuff. Mm-hmm. And I understand it takes both. I understand the world needs people who go deep and it needs people who go wide. And I think it works best when we talk to each other. Uh, so I read a couple times, and you even said this morning, I think, uh, you date ending your career as an activist at 1980 mm-hmm. was there a specific reason yeah i think so I, I think the 60s basically ended at the end of the 70s you know we thought growing up in you know those of us who came of age in the 60s we thought we could change the world and there was that deep hope and confidence and expectation that we would and by 1980, it was rather clear that revolution was way further off in the distance than we had imagined. And I had three children by then, and I made a very selfish decision. You know, I didn't want to spend my life in a trench where I couldn't get out of it, you know, where mm-hmm. there, was no, there was no exit. And I just I wanted to make a bigger contribution to society than I felt I could as an activist at that point. I believe you moved to L.A. Moved to L.A. And um, uh, waiter, uh, odd jobs. Yeah, you know, I, I had three kids, so I had to work. Yeah. And uh, I worked as a waiter, and I, I just spent the afternoons every day in the library reading and basically started reading about what they were doing at MIT at what was now the now the media lab, but then it was the architecture machine group lab, and I was just enchanted by the possibilities. I, one of my kids was a stepson with an astronomical IQ, I mean, really astronomical, and he, but he hated school, and I was very. He, he asked me one day, could he have an, a model airplane? And I had no money, and I didn't want to get it for him. And I said, look, go to the library, learn about aerodynamics, and we'll talk. <laughs> so he goes, and he gets all the books, and he comes home, and he, you know, he pages through them. And it was very clear to me at that moment that what Morgan needed was 
animations of the air going under the airplane and lifting it, right? It was, it, it's, it's, a, it's a subject that could be so, dealt with so much better with pictures and animation than in text. And I realized that what they were coming up with at MIT was a vehicle for effectively for adding multimedia to a book. In other words, for expanding the notion of the page to include not just text and not just pictures. And what was crucial here was something I sort of thought a lot about and sort of synthesized, which was that I started to talk about books as being a user-driven medium. In other words, you can read a paragraph six times till you understand it. You can skip backwards 10 pages pretty instantaneously. So that you're, you're in, readers are active. And so in that, so in that sense, user-driven. But in 1980, when this was taking place, the only, all the other media, radio, television, um, records, etc., were what I call producer-driven because there, there was no stop and start button. You sat there and it happened to you. But what I could see was about to happen was that with the uh, coming of the microprocessor, which would be in everything, that all of the traditionally producer-driven media were going to be turned into user-driven user media because we, we had then the first laser disc players mm -hmm. and we could stop the frame on a movie, we could make it run in slow motion. Unlike videotape, which takes forever to go back and forth so you don't, with video discs it was instantaneous like a book. So I realized that all the functionality of a book was going to exist in a much richer medium, which included audio, picture, video, and as many pictures as you wanted. And that's specifically the stuff at MIT that you read about and, and the article by the guy at IBM that you read about and yeah so that's what because you don't have uh, a tech we would say background you don't you no I definitely do not have a tech background I um, failed physics for poets so so let's how do we get here how do we get to where you eventually I want to get to like Britannica where you become this consultant that goes around so I I I, I had seen this encyclopedia that Random House had uh licensed from England by uh, Mitchell Beasley and it was colorful and lively and I had heard that you could put an entire encyclopedia on the laser disc which turned out to be completely false in the way that I was thinking. You could put the data on but you, you put couldn't, the data actually, on, read you couldn't the data. actually read it. <laughs> exactly. And so I, I wrote a letter to a guy I knew who used to be the, my sales rep in Seattle who now ran sales for Random House and I explained in three or four pages what it was I was interested in doing and that I wanted to license their encyclopedia. And He wanted to put an encyclopedia on a laser disc. Yeah. yeah. And I, a friend of mine asked me what I was up to, and I sent her a copy of the letter. And I had, I had written in this letter that Britannica was old and stodgy, and that's why I wanted to use the Random House one. And I, I gave it to my friend, and I'd forgotten that her father was on the board of directors of Britannica. And she gave it to her father, who gave it to the president of Britannica, who called me up and said, if you know so much, why don't you come and work for us? 
I actually knew nothing, right. as you can tell from the fact that I thought you could put the encyclopedia on there. But there was one place in the United States where they had actually made a bunch of video discs where I thought maybe the guy would help me. And it was the University of Nebraska. The CIA had had them make a whole shitload of discs for them. And I called up the guy who ran it, and I said, I've been invited by Britannica to come give a uh, demonstration of interactive video. Uh You know, how about coming with me? Mm -hmm. And so he did, and we got to Chicago, and his disc player didn't work. So we called up IBM, and I remember in the 110 degree heat, going from Britannica to IBM and getting a machine that they said they would lend us, bringing it back to Britannica. We put on, or not, we didn't, uh, Rodney put on this fantastic four-hour demonstration. The guys from Britannica got it, and they hired me. They gave, they gave me a year to write a paper for them about the future of Britannica. And I got to travel all over the United States and, um, you know, go to laboratories and and have them show me what they were doing. And I wrote a paper that, you know, I think if you read it today, it's rather prescient. And it was called Encyclopedia Britannica and the Intellectual Tools of the Future. And Can I just, um, I want to interject here because this is a point I've made in relation to the newspaper guys as well, that, you know, the, the received wisdom is that, oh, the newspaper got blindsided by digital. No, they didn't. They were experimenting with it for decades uh, and encyclopedia industry is in the, in the same way. Can oh, they dinosaurs that were no, they were smart enough to see what was coming down the pipe. I I think that with all of these um, legacy businesses, it's not that they were blindsided; it's that they are legacy businesses, and investing in something radically new and different is so scary. And they hire consultants who in the main say, oh, don't worry, that's 10 years off, that's 20 years off. You know, you, you don't have to worry about that now. Keep your profits coming, and in 10 years, you can worry about that. And it never, you know, it, it, the right time never quite comes. Mm-hmm. And it's an opportunity cost, and they're not willing to pay it. Um, but then at least they can say, well, we covered, we covered our bases, we looked into this, we, yeah. done the re- we paid the consultants. Yeah. yeah. Well, essentially, and, and that's what you become, is this evangelist for... Yeah, I, I mean, I really wanted to do this. And I, because by this time I'd been more sophisticated, I understood what, what the potential was. And in the paper I had written that the Encyclopedia of the Future would likely as not be a joint venture of Britannica, Lucasfilm, and Xerox Park. And Alan Kay, who was one of the important scientists at Xerox Park, left for uh, Atari, became their, their chief scientist. And I figured, this is way perfect, because mm-hmm. Atari is actually a consumer company as opposed to Xerox Park. And I tried for weeks to write a letter to Alan, and I just couldn't. I didn't know him, and I didn't know how to present this. And I finally just called him. and. I don't know how I got him on the phone, but I did. And he said, come on up. So I went up from L.A. to Silicon Valley. And it was a 120-page paper. And Alan sat there, and he read the entire thing. He's, he's rather fast at reading. Right in front of you. Yeah, like you're right sitting in front of me. Yeah. And he said, this is perfect. This is exactly what I want to do. Come, come and work with me. So I spent the next 18 months 
hanging out with Alan. And we, we actually, we both lived in LA. We flew together from LA to San Jose three or four days a week and back. So seven o'clock plane up in the morning, the four o'clock plane home. And we tried, we tried every which way to make something happen. But it was such a huge project. And Atari was coming on its bad moment with right. Pac-Man. And it blows you know, up around this time. Yeah, yeah. so we, we, you know, we we didn't pull it off there, and because Warner uh, wants to run far away from that yeah. debacle. Okay. Yeah, and but what but what did happen was since I wasn't since I didn't have a technical background, being in the research group at Atari, it's not like I was I had a research project where I was writing code. I was much more sort of a big picture kind of person at that point and so I gave myself the job of flying to New York every other week and going to meet with the suits at uh, 75 Rockefeller Center where Time Warner was to try to explain to them what they actually had mm -hmm. which was an amazing company with a computer that was better than the Apple II with an unbelievable research group because all of the first and second year graduates from the media lab, Alan got all of them to come uh, to Atari. And it was an amazing group, and we could have done incredible stuff. And I remember after 18 months there and I had left, Alan and I, we tried to think of what we had ever accomplished. Because Alan got criticized from everybody for being you know, a blue sky dreamer who never could actually do anything. And I remember once Alan went over to the you know, the chairman of um, Atari and said, point blank, you have nothing coming in your pipeline. Let me go to Japan. Let me license the coolest stuff that's ready right now. We'll have a whole bunch of project products for Atari for the next five years. And five years from now, we're going to have something incredible in terms of you know, new, new computers, etc. Well, and, and to put this in uh, technology context, so this is the early 80s. This is right when VHS as a technology is becoming mainstreamed. So you're looking ahead what's after VHS. and I, I think VHS had pretty much made it by right. this time. That's what I'm saying. But yeah, it's but... still the new, this is the new, people are getting VCRs for the first time in their home. But you're, again, like you're thinking that next step. It's not the sit-back experience. It's also the this rich media I, I think we were we were... Assuming completely that all media, text, audio, pictures, video, would be digital. And it was just going to be streaming over wires or networks. Mm -hmm. So uh, does Voyager start because of um, King Kong and... Well, sort of. There's a very, there's a crucial okay. uh, interim. When I would go west, when I would go east to talk to the guys at Atari, I met the guys from uh, Warner Records. And one of them, who was actually also based in LA, he hired me, didn't hire me, gave me a bunch of money in 1982, probably, maybe 83, and saying to me that CDs are coming, and along with CDs, a little bit later, we're gonna get CD-ROMs. And Warner should probably be in the CD-ROM business, whatever that is. Would you please come up with a bunch of, you know, projects, ideas? And 
I developed 10 proposals for them, uh, one of which figures importantly later on. But Warner's wasn't going to do anything with these proposals. They were good, they were solid, but they weren't going to go into the CD-ROM business. But I had all these kids and I wanted to work and so I would go, go around to different companies in, in Los Angeles trying to sell, sell them on the idea. And at the end of a really boring meeting at RKO Home Video, where the new president there had been the president of, there were three competing video disc systems, one uh, from um, Pioneer and IBM that was what we know as the LaserDisc. Mm -hmm. There was some stupid thing from RCA called Selectivision, and a third one from uh, JVC called, which was VHD. And this guy had been the president of the VHD department, which had completely gone bust. And so I said to him at the end of this really boring meeting, and I was, I was not planning to do it. It was not in my mind. It was almost a joke. I said, would you license me the CAV Laserdisc rights to Citizen Kane and King Kong? CAV was a very specific right because it allowed you to, to, to reproduce the film in a form where you could freeze the frame and make it go in slow motion at the cost of only having a half hour per film. So a 122 minute film would take six sides, yeah. which at um, $10 a disc meant your manufacturing cost was $35, $40, yeah. including the box. So he said to me, Sure, why not? They're not worth anything to us, which was true. He was right about that. And so I said, well, they're worth something to me. And so I was able to license Kane and Kong for both total for $5,000. And we put out Citizen Kane and King Kong. Now, the. the but that was before Voyager. Voyager. Voyager okay. When I. It's interesting when I started Citizen when I started Criterion, which was right. the label for the Laserdisc. Criterion comes before Voyager. Yes, my partner in that is the most senior executive from Time Warner, who lost his job at the Pac-Man debacle, mm. and or debacle, I guess. And he brought his severance pay, and that's what funded Criterion. Huh. But it turned out, as fantastic a person as he was. That he, he was he he was a suit at the, you know, fiftieth floor of Rockefeller Center. He didn't understand what it meant to be a scrappy startup, and we 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 needed to be scrappy. Mm -hmm. And I I realized it wasn't going to work, so I left. Mm -hmm. And I started and I started Voyager then, um, with a with a, a VHS tape. I I licensed the film. Uh, a fantastic poetry film called Poetry in Motion, put it out on VHS, knowing I wanted to do video discs, yeah. but I had to get moved to that place. Uh, before we leave Criterion, though, can you tell me the story of that first commentary track? Yeah. Um, I was... So at that time, and I don't think it's changed much, transferring from film to, from film to video is an art. I mean, you really have to pay close attention to every frame, really, and to make it the right color and density, et cetera. And so I brought with me to New York, that's, that's where we did the transfer, a guy named Ron Haver, who was the head of the film department at the LA, LA Museum of Art. And Art, I mean, uh, Ron came, 
and we did these transfers and it turns out that Kong is his favorite film and he's telling these amazing stories about the whole history of Kong and how it happens and one of the group that we have in the room and I'm, I'm, I don't think it was me said well wait a minute these laser discs have four soundtracks this film is in mono we don't need all four uh, why don't we use one to, and let Ron tell the story of the, all these stories and I said, um, we asked Ron, we said, would you do this? And he said, no, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> and I said, well, if we got you really stoned, would you do it? <laughs> and he said, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. And that was the birth of the commentary track. And it was simply because, well, why let this extra track go to waste? And... I think it was, I mean, the whole point, because we, we, we'd figured out, we knew we were doing a supplementary section. Okay. It was just another form of supplementary. Right. And because the idea is, is you're, for this new medium, you're repackage them. That, those are the rights you bought, the ability to repackage this. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the question was, you know, could you, by providing more context, give life to an iconic cultural warhorse? In other words, for older people, meaning you know, people who hadn't seen the film when they were growing up, could you, who did see the film when they were growing up, could you give them a reason to go back and revisit it and study it and think about it? And for you know, younger people who were seeing it for the first time, could you give them a surround, a, a level of a layer of context that enabled them to appreciate the film and why it's so important in film history and in cultural history? Well, let's let's get to some of the things on the table here. <laughs> um, uh, we're moving back to Voyager, right? Um, so let let me hear the story. It, is is the first big aha the melding with the hypercard? Is that the first one? Yeah. Tell me that story. I mean, the the goal was always to go to the computer, mm-hmm. but. I came out of a, a, a printing world, a, a, a print world, and so and so I was deeply involved with the aesthetics of print, and we'd had hundreds of years of book printing, and so we had a sense of what a beautiful page was, and but at that point in the early '80s, what you had on a computer screen. For text, for example, was you know a black page with pea green text, and as, as aesthetically it offended me, and I wasn't interested. Mm-hmm. And so, hooking up a laserdisc player to a computer, we could make the the graphic component basically would be coming off the video, and it could be you know much more beautiful than we could make on the computer screen at that point. And so. My, you know, my first goal was to sort of explore interactive media by using video as the sort of source of the imagery. Uh, and so literally the day that Apple made it possible to connect the Laserdisc player to a Macintosh, um, we did. You know, it was the, it was the back classic six... 40 by 400 uh, uh, resolution and uh, so we could put text on there it was just black and white there was no not even grayscale so we could put you know fairly decent text on the computer screen and we could put the graphics in the video 
And so that was, uh, we started playing around with that. And because at that same time is when the HyperCard first came out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, didn't, I wasn't a computer programmer, but I could, I could write HyperTalk. Go next card, go next page. If next page is white, then go, you know. That's always the magic that people talk about HyperCard is non-programmers can essentially program, yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I have to, this is a tangent, but since sure. you're, this is a history of the internet. Yes, please. I, many of your listeners may already know, one of the very, very first things Steve Jobs did when he came back to Apple was kill HyperCard. Mm -hmm. Because Steve just really didn't like it when ordinary humans could contribute and do stuff. It horrified him. And it was, it, it was really a shame because, I, I mean, I met my, my son today is an is a, is a engineer at Google. He was one of the first people in the VR group there. And he got his start with HyperCard on a machine that Alan Kay gave to his school. And I know a lot of young kids who got their start as hypercard programmers mm -hmm. and it was because the thing about hypercard was that for, especially for kids was you didn't have to focus on learning a complex language you could focus on what you were actually trying to say and these kids made amazing stuff so the this combination hooking it up to the mac uh putting together the rudimentary menu and navigation systems with hypercard yeah. um so what are the first um these are laser discs, or or do you do the ebooks e first? Well, the the no no ebook ebooks is later. Okay, ebooks is later. Um, the first one, actually, and is a the guy who wrote HyperCard was a guy named Bill Atkinson. Bill Atkinson was going to a marriage counselor. His marriage counselor's wife was given a version of the precursor to HyperCard, which was WildCard. And she did these really lovely little point-and-click stories um, under the name of Amanda Stories. And the first one was Inigo Gets Out. It's about a little black cat. And it was absolutely charming. And so we published that in 1987 or early 1988. And I, in many ways, I think it should be regarded historically as the world's first electronic book. Mm -hmm. um, so the Voyager as a company is launching lots of Laserdisc titles. And well, yeah, Criterion gets subsumed under Voyager, okay, yeah. and, and we public, you know, keep publishing a lot of films. We, in the computer side, we're not really doing anything until HyperCard comes out, okay, and, then and then we do the Amanda stories, but we don't do anything else really except for making... Um, we made something called the Voyager Video Stack, which allowed teachers all over the world to do what we were doing, which was to control a laser disc mm -hmm. through the, the computer. And one of the funniest stories about Voyager is that you had to have a cable to connect the computer to the laser disc player. And it was a cable that required, you know, so you had to make it. And nobody wanted to buy, you know, Apple didn't want to make the cables because they, more, you know, not enough quantity. Sony, nobody would make them. So Voyager actually started manufacturing cables, 
and we became we we were the supplier huh. to to Apple and to Sony and to everybody every other company uh -huh. when you know they buy them by the hundreds from us. Um, is maybe the most profitable thing we ever did was make these cables. Huh. <laughs> All right, so because but anyway, but yeah. so so but the but the, the big breakthrough as far as interactive media for us was when uh, Apple uh, hooked up a CD player okay. to the Mac. Because then, going back to the Warner project, right. and going back further back, th th this is a great story. So Alan and I are traveling together on the airplane, sometimes for four or five hours a day. And the Alan talks to me all the time about music and about computer science, neither of which I actually know anything about. I like music, but I don't, I'm not a, I'm not musical. Mm -hmm. And so I take a uh, class at UCLA, a music appreciation class, with this fantastic charismatic professor named Robert Winter, where his classes are, gets 500 people coming, paying 20 bucks a night, which is a lot at that point. And he, he brings a quartet, each class is about a particular piece of music. He brings a quartet onto the... Let's say it's about a quartet. He shows a bunch of slides, sort of contextualizing the historical moment. He plays a lot of tapes of precursor music. And then he brings the quartet on the stage. And they play, they play the quartet. He stops them every few bars to make a point. There's a break, and then they come back and they play the whole piece, mm -hmm. uh, and you hear it much more better than because you you understand a lot more. And I realized at the time that at some point we would be able to recreate what Alan had done as a, in, in in a, in a in a with a computer, not what Alan what, what Robert Winter had done. Right. And so I, I get the I get the I get the uh, the device from Apple. It's Christmas Day. I run over to Robert's house. I plug it into his computer, and I have Beethoven's Ninth Symphony with me as a CD, and I put it in there, and I make a little hypercard stack, and I start to write something, and Robert gets immediately what the potential is, mm -hmm. and we basically start doing the criterion collection of music where we have a, a, a commentary track, but in this case it's textual, but it plays while you listen. And there's all the, the supplementary materials. There's all the historical context. There's the musical context. And can, can we, let's, let's, let's describe that a little deeper. Because again, what we're talking about now, everyone would, in, would say, oh, well, duh, that's how it would be presented, of course. But think about for the first time, Here's Beethoven's Ninth. You can play it. You can pause it. What is this movement about? What, is, what are the themes? What's the background? When was this written? It, to me, I mean, the real heart of this was the commentary track because it, what it meant was that as you were listening, somebody was explaining it to right. you. And it, it unbelievably powerful vehicle for understanding. It focuses your attention so that even somebody like me who doesn't understand music really can can hear the music in a way that you couldn't before. Mm -hmm. You know, the you know, terms like arpeggio suddenly can make sense. Mm -hmm. And 
And the other thing is that you could, like with a book, where you can read the paragraph over and over again, right. suddenly you can play that page's music, as it were, six times. Mm -hmm. And it, it worked. You're in and, control of the experience. Yeah. And you know, it, it, we sold a, a, a lot of them. I mean, at Microsoft licensed the first three titles for Windows. Mm -hmm. And they sold uh, $30 million worth. So this is, I'm holding the box right here. Uh, so this is the first commercially released CD-ROM. It, it's, it's the first commercially viable CD-ROM. CD I mean, I, there was probably a porn <laughs> probably you know, put out before yeah. that. But yeah. in terms of, and you know, Apple sold a zillion computers where you know, every school in the country Every you know every music department you know bought at least one computer just to play this one CD-ROM because it was revelatory. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, what, what's what's very interesting though is why we were never able to do a hundred of them. Why we mm. were never able to do the basic library, mm. the way the Criterion has gone on to uh -huh. make the basic library of of movie classics. Why couldn't we do that for music? And it has everything to do with the fact that um, the internet came along. Mm. Okay, so, but criteria, uh, I'm sorry, Voyager does essentially go into the business of producing CD-ROM CD -ROM titles. Um, is pr the, the premier, the, the biggest in the industry. I've, I've said before on the show, there's a slight bubble in CD-ROM technology that precedes the web bubble. Yeah. Um, it, it lasts about five years. Right. Well, give me a little color on that, about suddenly this is a hot up-and-coming industry and, and you're at the heart of it. You know, it, it starts in 1989, and we put this out, and uh, the Beethoven, and then we, you know, put out a... It, it was fantastic because there were no rules. Mm. I mean... I remember this. Uh, this is a really, really good story. I, I'm at somebody's house. Uh, Bill Viola is a video artist, mm -hmm. and I meet a guy there, a Mexican photographer, and he starts telling me about this fantastic thing he's just seen, which is a CD-ROM about Beethoven's Ninth. He, he didn't know that I had anything right. to do with it, and but then he invites me over to his house to see some some of his work. And I go to his house, and he shows me 90 photographs that he's taken during the last three years of his parents' life. And it's got a fantastic, the story has a fantastic arc to it. And I'm sitting there listening to him tell the story. He has a beautiful voice. And I realize, wait a minute, this is just a slideshow. We don't publish slideshows at this point in history because most of us don't have uh, tape, uh, what are they called, slide what are, they, what are those things called? The slideshow carousels. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. It's yeah. just not practical. Projectors, yeah. Projectors with audio. Okay, right. Right, and so we don't do that. And you, yes, you could put it on video, but televisions don't have enough resolution for photography. Mm -hmm. But I said, but we now have computer screens which have a higher resolution, and photography will look fantastic on the computer screen. So we could publish this. So we work with Pedro Pedro Meyer to produce this CD-ROM called I Photograph to Remember. And we show it in 1992 at a computer conference at the Beverly Hills Hotel. 
and this is not an exaggeration. There are 500 people in the room, probably 93% men, almost everybody wearing a suit. And we are showing this, we show the entire thing, and there is not a sound in the room. Mm. Nobody moves because this is the first time that any of these people, and they're all executives in the digital computer world, this is the first time they've ever seen an emotional content expressed on a computer screen. And everybody just goes nuts because, oh my God, this is so much wider and deeper than we ever thought in terms of what we could do in terms of content. And so we, we put that out. Um, you know, and what happened, and sort of everybody sort of came to us. You know, I was going through some letters the other day, you know, letters from Yo Yo Ma, from Steve Reich, from Laurie Anderson. I mean, everybody wanted, they wanted to experiment. They wanted, mm-hmm. you know, it's a cool new toy and they wanted to play with it. And, and still no rules. And still no rules. Um, and, and we, you know, I think very fortunately, we had the cash flow from the Criterion Collection that wasn't making money, but it made us think it was. So there was millions of dollars coming in all the time that we could spend on sort of other stuff that we had fun with. And we also, we were very lucky. We got, we, the guy who funded Sesame Street Hmm. as a foundation uh decided he wanted to help get interesting stuff done in the CD-ROM world. And he did a cook-off where he had... 12 of us come in and present ideas and we won and that was actually and what they did was we structured so this was so smart they loaned us the money to make the Beethoven Uh we paid them back Uh then they loaned us money to do the next one we paid them back they loaned us money to do the next one we paid them back so that was an amazing situation where we didn't have to go out and raise money every time we wanted to do an experiment um, I'm being aware of our time constraints here, so I'm going to segment off the ebooks for possibly another conversation. Um, so let, uh, let bring back the thought of it never it was about five years, but then the web comes, and then the web takes over. Yeah. Sitting where we were. Mm-hmm. We knew the web was coming. In fact, um, behind you there's a little map of... We, we embraced the internet at Voyager. We started doing all kinds of experiments. I, we did the very first uh, streaming conference where we went out to San Francisco and we, we streamed this... Uh, uh, I forget exactly, it was an anti-censorship conference and we took questions from people all over the world in real time. Uh, we, we, we did a narrative corpse where one artist started make, you know, made a picture and gave it to the next artist. Uh, it, it was, um, we, we, we would take artists and we would, we would make web pages for them. The Guerrilla Girls, who were uh, an important sort of protest group around the question of women's role in art, we, you know, we gave them a web page. I found the other day um, 500 pages of emails that women wrote to them through this web page that we had created. Uh, the, and so what happened in the 
around 94, 95 was, it was clear by that time that the internet was going to take off and CD-ROMs were, were not going to win. And all the smart hedge fund guys and investment bankers, they all knew that content was going to play an important role and they were looking for a content play. And every one of them came to us and said, um, you know, we look, we've looked around. Voyager, more than anybody else, could sort of be the winner here in the content area if you want to move it aggressively into the internet. And I went away for six months, sort of. I'm not actually away, but I spent six months writing a sort of position paper about what it would mean for Voyager to leave the uh, sort of the object world and go to the internet world. And I, I think it was I think it was a smart piece, but my partners, uh, given where they came from, they did not want to go public. And that was part of the deal. If you were going to mm -hmm. take, mm -hmm. you know, n millions of dollars from an investment banker, yeah. they were going to take you public. Yeah. And that was the last thing they they wanted to do. And I made the only really bad mistake I feel like I made in my career, which was I, I basically gave, I basically left. Mm -hmm. And I, I should have fought for Voyager, but I, I didn't want to, the internet was too shiny and I didn't want to not be involved. And the other problem, and, and I should have paid attention to that one, not the second one. The other problem was that the tools that we had for making interactive media were so difficult mm. that you had to have a world-class programmer. Anything we did on the CD-ROM, a world-class programmer had to do it. And you couldn't quite do any of that stuff yet on the web. And so I decided that what I should do is work on tools. I wanted to make something where the authors, the people who held the subject matter close to their hearts, that they could do the draft. You know, maybe they couldn't finish it, but hypercard style, they could, you know, basically draft up what they wanted to do, and then we would, you know, then we would hire the people and do everything else. And I spent, you know, the next 20 years really making tools. Right. Things like um, TK3. And, yeah. Um, so other people have come on this show, because I'm New York based, I, I tend to be more interested in tech in New York and how it got seated here. Several people have credited Voyager moving to New York um, and bringing that talent here with sort of seeding the idea that New York is a tech hub because when the web does come, all of these creative people are able to move over to that. Yeah, that was a really interesting thing. I mean, we were definitely the first company in Silicon Alley. Right. But so we but we'd been in in Los Angeles for eight years and it was so interesting because in Los Angeles all the people that applied to work at Voyager were people who failed at the movie business. Hmm. We moved to New York and everybody who wanted to come work with us were people who had succeeded in the publishing industry hmm. but could see the writing on the wall and wanted to move into what was more exciting. So in a sense, when we moved to New York, we got sort of the best and the brightest of, of the available pool, which is not to put down my colleagues in California. All right. You know, we, we, we hired great people, 
and they were great. But in New York, it was like everybody wanted to work. There was, I mean, L.A. really is a company town, mm. right? If you don't work in the movie business, you're second rate. Whereas in New York, it wasn't that way, and we could be the, uh, we could be the exciting new, you know, kid on the block. Um, so, are you are you still involved with the future of the book? Um, you know, that was a that was a five year gig. It was one of these things where I got a phone call one morning from the MacArthur Foundation saying, "We loved it when you were a publisher." Mm-hmm. How can we help you go back into publishing? And I said, I don't really know. I said, I, you know, what a publisher is in the context of the internet, we don't know yet. And I said, but I'd love to think about it. And they, you know, they gave me a, they gave me four times more than I asked for. And I got to spend five years uh, with an unbelievably smart group of young people, sort of thinking about what, what is the future of the book. And I think for your listeners, I think I have to sort of qualify that a little bit. When I said earlier that I defined a book as a user-driven media, yes. medium, the, the other thing I would say about, a, I learned to say about a book was that a book is a vehicle for moving ideas around time and space. And that I didn't want to think about a book as a, as a, you know, a codex you know, printed pages held together by a, a spine. To me, what, what was a book used for was used to move ideas around. And so to me, for 500 years, the locus of intellectual discourse was on paper. To me, that was changing. There's no possibility, you know, 10 years from now that most communication is going to be on paper. It's just not. Or, or if I'm off by 10 years, I'm off by 10 years. But it, it clearly, the locus of intellectual discourse is shifting to networked screens, and that was where I wanted to be. Well, we did kind of skip over Voyager's uh, ebook. Stuff. Yeah, then we, I think, let's try to keep it in this okay, session. Cause yeah. it, it, um, but in the, in the context of, and we'll wrap up on this, uh, you were looking over my shoulder today, and the, the new Kindles were announced, mm-hmm. and... Um, your your vision for that sort of media, where the book is something different and more all, all encompassing, are we there yet, or no, we're not there at all. Um, I, here's the thing: Amos, the first wave of eBooks were just taking text and putting it on a screen. That had differing values for different people. I think actually now, 10 years later, 10 years after the Kindle, about somewhere between 25 and 50% of reading takes place on screens. In the book industry, they like to say what that means is that print is going to be here forever and people prefer print. What it really says is that the affordances of eBooks so far, only appeal to 25 to 50%. The other 50% don't appreciate what you can do as being very interesting. But that's because we haven't really gone to the next stage in a profound way. I mean, that was the work that we did at the Institute for the Future of the Book, was mm-hmm. really starting to experiment with what happens when you turn a, the reading of a book from a solitary experience to a collaborative experience. And 
most of your listeners will think that sounds terrible and it does to people until they do it and then they start to appreciate how much more interesting it is to read with people than it is to read alone um the uh, alan k one of my favorite expressions of alan was that point of view is worth 80 iq points and all he meant was is that if if you and i and uh, somebody over there all tackled the same problem we're going to be smarter than if just one of us does because we're going to triangulate the problem bring different perspectives to it etc and it turns out to be true with with any sort of intellectual exercise if you can look at something from more than one direction you're going to have a better understanding of it and we, we had we had this thing where we had three kids read uh, Don Quixote together at a school here in New York they put 6,000 comments mm. into the margin and I interviewed them afterwards and they said we just continuously were spurring each other on to make insights that we never would have made by ourselves mm. and that's I think that's the next stage. I think that all media consumption is going to go social. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, you know, it's exciting. But it's not a trivial shift. It's a, it, it's a post-print era shift. And we are not there yet. You know, it took, you know, if you think about the shift from before um, uh, printing then you realize that it really takes, let me see, printing press perfected 1454. Mm -hmm. The first novel, regarded as the first novel, Don Quixote, doesn't come out until 1609, right? right? It's 150 years, because it takes a long time for humans to wrap their heads around the potential of new technologies. It's almost you need the artist to be creating in this new framework yeah yeah to find that framework yeah uh well bob stein thank you for for coming on and and um describing digital media up into the web and and the modern era and and thanks for pointing uh, painting a picture where maybe it can go my pleasure thank you very much if this is the first time you're listening to this podcast please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at nethistorypod, And my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.